Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Call. Wonderful to have you with us. This is the program 10 Stocks Picked by You, two expert guests, all in the space of 60 minutes, plus a couple of stock picks, buys from our guests are coming up. It's the 13th of October. I'm Nadine Blaney, and it's really good to be here with you as always, and great to have the chance to chat with my guests again. Andrew Veitlin from DP Wealth Advisory up in Toowoomba, Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial here in Sydney, who I think we'll be able to welcome into the studio quite soon. Hey guys, wonderful to have you along. I'm not going to waste any time off the top here because we're in the midst of one of our stock specials. Kashi wants to know what you would buy if there was a more significant pullback. So if we saw, let's call it a crash, you know, more than a five, six, seven percent pullback, what would be top of your shopping list? Andrew, let's start with you. Now, Nadine, you're going to think I'm going to say ETF, aren't you? Well, I, 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 wouldn't surprise me. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, no, today I'm, I'm, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Uh, Macquarie would be my choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And full disclosure, I used to work for them. That's not the reason I'm suggesting it, but uh, just getting that out there early. So using sort of the Koshy parameters of a bit of bother about, if we take our minds as painful as it is, back to 23 March 2020, Macquarie bottomed out at $76.00 having previously back in February been trading at $156. So uh, I think we could call that a crash. That's a pretty decent pullback. Um, but subsequently, as we can see, uh, Macquarie's been on a, a bit of a tear, $182, $183. Why do I like the holy donut? Look, there's a few reasons. Um, they've got a very strong annuity style business, about $790 billion now of FUM, having recently uh, made some acquisitions and from that comes some pretty significant recurring revenue as well. The other thing I like Nadine is that its return on equity is around 13% as you know I'm a bit of an ROE fan yeah. and uh, a 13% ROE and if we compare and contrast that to other investment banks that's uh, that's pretty strong and in fact out of the retail banks only Commonwealth Bank has got an ROE which is similar CDAs is about 12% so strong return on equity good recurring income streams, lots of funds under management. And if things do continue to go along um, as they are at the moment, then from an opportunity or deals point of view, there's lots of deals that Macquarie got their fingers in lots of pies. So MQG is the go-to here, Nadine. Now, I have to just push the point a little bit. Um, obviously, a crash is not a technical definition, but if we say that Macquarie is trading at $183 right now, which it is, I mean, hindsight's 2020. I wish I'd loaded up at $76 on the 23rd of March, 2020. We don't want uh, such a black swan event to happen again. So what would be a reasonable price to you to buy Macquarie if we saw some sort of a pullback? I mean, would it be 10%? Uh, what, would, what would be a price you'd be willing to pay? 
I want to see what the markets come back first. So let's say it's a standard correction. So standard correction, as Michael would, I'm sure, agree with me with that trauma verbalism. You know, once every year, you'll probably see a standard 10, maybe yep. sometimes up to 20% correction. So using those parameters around, I'm just looking at the chart as well, I would think around that 150, 155. If it was around those levels, I'd be loading my boots up. Great. My viewers will be happy. How about you, Michael? Wow. What would yes. you buy if there was a crash, say a 10% correction? Well, I interpreted this as a full-blown full, full blown okay. crash, <laughs> not, not a little piddly correction. So I've gone for Commonwealth Bank. Yeah. Um, looking back at the, the GFC in 2008, we saw that the share price pulled back from about 60 down to about $30 a share. Um, and even last year or 80 months ago, when, when COVID first came onto the scene, we saw Commonwealth Bank pull back from around sort of $90 down to 70 or even 60, I think it might have even been mid 60s. So the idea is that when a crash is upon us, um, uncertainty is at its highest. And along the same lines as Andrew, I think in those situations, you want to go for very high quality businesses and CBA, I think, ticks the box. Um, in those scenarios, you often think or people often think that everyone's going to lose their job. No one's going to be able to pay back their mortgages. The assets that these mortgages are backed by being property, they're going to fall through the floor. So often everyone's pricing in a doom and gloom scenario. Um, and as it often turns out, uh, the worst case scenario doesn't transpire. So for something um, in, a, in a very, very turbulent market, I think you can't really go past something like a Macquarie or something like a CBA, because although I don't necessarily think the long-term growth profile for CBA is terrific, at times of a crash, um, I do think you do get the opportunity to pick up a very good quality business um, at a very big discount. So that's why I'm leaning to that. Um, you can probably throw in Westpac and, and ANZ as mm -hmm. well along similar lines of thinking. Got it. Thanks, guys. Now, just keep it quick, but to just clarify, Michael, you're not expecting any sort of a crash to come through. You know, we are in a period of heightened volatility. We are in a period of rising bond yields. But has that changed sort of your view on the overall trajectory of the market go going forward? No, I'm pretty optimistic on the outlook. Obviously, there's a, a few issues to take into consideration at the moment. But I think if you look through history, it's very rare for large scale crashes to occur uh, when economic growth is still growing quite quickly. Um, and we're coming out of a, a period of recession. I think we're probably somewhere in between the recovery phase and the next downturn. Um, yes, economic growth numbers might be slowing a little bit, but they're certainly still growing at a mm -hmm. decent clip. Um, so you have to always be careful. But like Andrew touched upon, a 10% correction is common at least once or twice a year looking back through history. So the September, October, week and months of the year, um, a little 10, 15% correction probably isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, it does yeah. at least bring back valuations a little bit. Now, just a quick one from you, Andrew. Is there a crash or is there likely a correction, a further correction between now and say the end of the year. I had my first email from a viewer saying, Nadine, you've got to start asking about a Santa Claus rally and the chance of that. Right again. Uh, no, look, and perversely, I want another 5% down. So we're down about five. I want another 5% down. We've had 11 months where up until September, we didn't draw breath. First time since 1942. Sure, Michael would agree, not healthy. You need it to pull back. So another 5%, we set ourselves up quite nicely for November and into that Christmas Santa Claus rally. Uh, agree with everything that Michael said. 
probably the only sort of um, other thing to think about short term around the noise, US debt ceiling and third quarter earnings coming into the US next week. But uh, generally speaking, another 5%. Andrew's very happy. Got it. Thank you. Let's get cracking, shall we? The companies that have been um, well proposed by our our viewers. Let's get to BHP for Diana. Now, this one, guys, has a bit of context. She says, it, is it too late to buy BHP? She's a senior, and uh, she does believe that this is relevant when we're talking about a buy and a hold scenario. Andrew. Well, of course, we, uh, we're only sort of uh, talking generally here, so as much as I'd like to consider someone's age, I'm, I'm not going to. Um, I think, though, that if I was talking around investment time horizons, maybe that might be a way of putting it, uh, look very relaxed with BHP, and certainly this current weakness is actually, I think, an opportunity. Uh, if you have a look at just sort of the underlying fundamentals, it's trading on a P of eight. I mean, you talk about any business at eight times earnings. Uh, and we have to have some context there that iron ore is a significant part of their business and obviously iron ore has corrected a fair bit. But what we've really seen over the last two to three months is really positioning themselves for the next three, five and seven years beyond around sort of moving into that green metal space. So that sort of pivot away from, there is a, I said it, that pivot away from uh, fossil fuels and moving more towards uh, the green metals, uh, you know, your copper, etc. So from my point of view, I'm, I'm pretty happy buying BHP at these levels. It's, it's got a consensus valuation of around $45. Where, where are we today? About 38, something like that. Um, so from my point of view, this is out of all the ones we're going to talk about today, one of the ones that I'm really keen on at the moment and would be relaxed in buying. Got it. Are you pretty relaxed around buying BHP at these levels, Michael? Um, in, in consideration of the recent pullback, um, not only in the share price, but in iron ore, it's certainly coming onto the radar again. Um, our preference is to try and buy commodity companies mm -hmm. when the underlying commodities of, of these businesses that they're mining um, are closer to the longer term average. When iron ore is up around $200 a tonne, it, it's very, very high compared to that historical number. At around $100, it's starting to get a little bit closer. So we we have some clients in there. It's not a, a broad-based hold for us, but at this point, I'm not buying it. It's more of a, a hold. I do have some question marks over what's going on in China at the moment um, and, and how they're looking to maybe curb some of their steel output. Um, so. Who knows with the Chinese government, if they do continue to have a bit of an environmental slant, that might continue to weigh on the outlook, not only for iron ore, but also for things like copper. Um, we have seen a big bounce in the, the metallurgical coal um, prices, which is somewhat offsetting the decline that we've seen in the iron ore price. Mm -hmm. But although BHP is diversified, mainly across copper, iron ore, uh, coal and petroleum, um, iron ore still makes up about 70% of those revenues and it's got the pretty high, it's got a very high margin, probably the highest out of all those commodity suites as well. So from my standpoint, um, it looks attractive because of the free cash flow yields very, very high. The forecast dividend yields pushing sort of eight, nine, 10%, depending on who you read. So there are definitely attractive features, um, but I'm not in a position to give it a buy just because we don't really hold it for that many clients and we're not buying it for clients at the moment, but a, any further pullback will certainly uh, consider it. Yeah, Michael likes to have his actions matching his words. And to Andrew's point as well, Holly is uh, the next question we'll be answering for. Just remember, this is not for your own personal circumstances. It's information 
only mind the disclaimer is how I like to put it all right the next on the list for Holly thanks Holly for writing in is xref xf1 is the ticker code listen guys I had a conversation the other day with somebody who anticipates a great resignation once we all get back to work we have our freedoms reinstalled she says uh, this guest had said that a lot of people are going to be looking to change their work circumstances potentially there's a lot of uh, pressure on labor and labor shortages out there so could that be good for a company like xref which is essentially um, automated reference checking online andrew what do you think yeah i was reading that uh, myself nadine okay. and um, in i guess in regional australia we've probably got a slightly different view of the world but i can certainly understand people being locked up for 116 days uh and wanting some freedom and you know maybe an opportunity to sort of uh look at different opportunities and that's where this company fits in because as you're saying it's that automated uh, reference checking obviously hr is a, a big area relating to compliance and anything that saves time in that regard is uh, is, is welcome I, I would expect from hr professionals and if you have a look at the growth trajectory that this business appears to be on certainly from a revenue point of view from a geographic point of view you know they've got operations in the uk of course here in australia uh new zealand and looking at you know some of their clients that they've recently picked up you know clients like kiwi bank um arnott's h&m so you know these aren't small businesses and any sort of um, efficiencies that um, this company can help deliver would be a positive. I also note that the um, founder still owns around 17% of the company, which is a good and a bad thing. It's good that you know they still have skin in the game, but what it equally suggests is that there's a bit of an overhang there, and you know will the founder necessarily want to disappear into the sunset at some stage, or if there's a takeover, you know they're going to have to agree to it. So. From my point, I hadn't really come across this one before. I think I read about it in the press uh, about a week or so ago, so it popped first up on my radar, but doing the deep dive. Um, so from my point of view, it's probably a hold at this stage, but uh, certainly the underlying business itself looks interesting, but yeah, just a couple of little amber lights there. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, it's certainly an interesting one. I had come across it a while ago, but didn't pay too much attention to it, and I probably should have looking at how well, the share price has performed. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to provide um, a, a software platform which is well liked and can be used across many businesses, across many sectors. They've got very large customer base really across the world. Um, I think Westpac and some of the banks use their services as well. Uh, and it just reduces um, the amount of time that these HR departments need to spend themselves chasing up on references, making phone calls, etc. The, the thing with this company, and I think it's a perfect example of a business that has come out to the market, outlined a plan of attack and, and a path to growth, and they've executed on that in time, um, which is not something you can say for a lot of emerging businesses. So this company now is free cash flow positive. Um, they've got a positive EBITDA figure after years of investment into their platform. They've seen a big reduction in the expenses as that investment period phases out for them. So. As an emerging business, this one is probably one to keep an eye on just to see if they can continue to deliver and continue to scale up quite nicely. Um, it is a subscription-based model, which is a, a buzzword in markets these days because it does ensure that annual recurring revenue um, going forward. But given the run-up, given the, the valuation, um, it does look very expensive by traditional metrics. It will need to continue to deliver, continue to grow at a rapid rate in order to justify these prices. 
Um, if it did have a bit of a pullback, it's one that we would consider. But do keep in mind, it is a, a smaller company. Um, it's not that easy for large funds um, and large uh, investments to be made in a company of, of this size, but it certainly is delivering as management have indicated. So from mine, I'll give it a hold for now with a view to doing a bit more work into it, and but also keeping on the watch list for any significant pullback. So they do mm -hmm. seem to be doing a lot of good things. All right, so that's for you, Holly. Let's get on to a question for Fang. This is C-Link, SLK. It has dropped, even as we've started talking about reopening and travel and tourism uh, being restored. So he'd like to get your opinion on C-Link. What do you think, Michael? Because C-Link is ferries. It is the domestic tourism business in many parts of Australia, but it's also got a commuter service business that's a big part of it in the UK, which of course has opened up as well. So what's going on with C-Link? Yeah, it's look, people often lump it into these tourism stocks uh, and it does have a, a tourism aspect to it. And probably historically people associate it with, you know, the Captain Cook Cruises or the, the Kingfisher Bay Resort or even the, I think it was the Kangaroo Island Ferry that they were running at some point in time. Yeah. But they've broadened out into sort of land as well as marine transport. So they've got these contracts now in Singapore. And they've got and, and they've recently renewed a contract in the Brisbane with the Brisbane City Council, um, contracts for bus services throughout Adelaide. Um, so they are really broadening out and diversifying their, their earnings base. Um, they've recently also um, signed, I think, a contract with the London bus services. So as they grow, they're definitely growing their revenue base, which is which is good. However, in doing that, their margins have dropped. Uh, there are things like return on equity have come down as well. So the company is definitely looking to invest now and, and expand now for future growth. But the question mark is whether or not they'll be able to deliver that. Uh, and the fact is they'll probably need to continue winning more and more contracts to continue to can grow revenue rates at the same rate that we've come to expect in recent times. Uh, the recent pullback in share price appears to be because they missed out on the contract in Melbourne. Um, so, look, it just shows you that the market can be a little bit fickle. If they do start to miss out on some of these contracts, the share price after a big run up can come back pretty quickly. But they have done a pretty good job in making the most of a tough situation. Normally, you would think that during uh, a COVID impacted tourism sector that a business like this would suffer when they've actually gone about and done the opposite. So they need to be commended from that. But from my standpoint, um, I would be probably looking to sell just because of the run up in share price and just wait to see whether they're able to incorporate these recent contract wins into their business and start to get some of those key metrics picking up again, such as margins, such as return on equity to match and, and to keep up with the revenue growth that they've seen. Yeah, it's a sell and um, selling can be just as important and just as difficult, I suppose, as buying as well. Andrew, buy, hold or sell for C-Link? Uh, it's a hold, um, but I can certainly see where Michael's coming from. If we're sort of applying a valuation lens, it's a P of 22, forecast P of 22 and uh, forecast EPS growth of 18. And of course, my friend, the pig, your friend, the pig, everyone's friend, the pig, you're trying to buy a company whose PE ratio is similar, if not lower, than the forecast earnings per share growth. So if you apply that lens, there's potentially 20% more downside. Uh, having said that, though, I think it's a hold, and it's not because they get a lot of their revenue from Queensland, even though I'm accused of being the correct or Queenslander. Um, there's lots to like about this business, and obviously impact from COVID is not helping them either, but conversely, it could be a positive for them. 
maybe though from a societal point of view are people less likely want to travel on public transport once things start reopening who knows um, I guess though I like the fact that 88% of their revenue comes from government contracts so if you're looking for businesses that have got steady reliable income streams it's pretty hard to beat a business like that and from an index fund perspective um, they were recently added to the ASX S&P 200 so in other words uh, index buying will also help support the share price as well. The chart looks terrible as we just saw before. So uh, I, I think it's a hold uh, from my point of view. And as you can see from a support point of view, it's probably about six bucks, which happens just to fit with about a 20% downside. Yeah. So uh, I, I hope Michael's not right, mate. But uh, yeah, it's certainly got uh, danger written all over it. Well, we will keep an eye on Sealink Travel uh, then. Yeah. Now, I will start with you on this next one, Andrew, because it wouldn't be a show without you, would it, unless we talked about an ETF to draw on your specialty. So we've got a question coming in from Damien about the iShares Core MSCI World X Australia ESG Leaders ETF. Boy, that is a mouthful. The ticker code is IWLD. He says it's got a pretty big holding of some of the big tech giants, which he likes, Apple, Microsoft, Google. And uh, it seems to be a, a cheaper way to add some international and ESG exposure to some of those big international firms. So what, what, does, he have to need, what does he have to consider, I suppose, if um, he's considering investing in this ETF, Andrew? Yeah, lots, lots to unpack and I'm mindful we've got a lot to, get, lot to get through, so I'll try and keep it brief, Nadine, which as you know is difficult. But I, I guess the first thing is when we're talking ESG as opposed to ETFs, acronym city um your definition of esg might be different to mine relative to michael's so there's no sort of standard is this an ethically well so, uh, or focused on social or focused on governance type of uh etf so that's something you need to keep on mind because there's plenty of other ones out there to consider we as an example like ethi uh, but they've probably got a different lens um Damien's right relating to the MER. The MER, MER is very sharp, as in it's really good. Nine basis points. There's very few out there that have got such a low MER. So that's a real positive for it. Again, if I was to compare and contrast it to ETHI, it's around 40 basis points, so four times more expensive. But and just to be I clear guess, for those not in the know, MER is basically the management, um, you know, the management expense ratio is what it stands for. So it's the fees. Look at you go, Nadine. Look at you go. So, I've been paying attention all these years, Andrew, believe it or not. <laughs> Indeed. So I, I guess um, Damien's right. If you're having a look at some of the names that are in there, 8% Apple, 7% Microsoft, 6% Google, and you've got a bit of Tesla, and you've got a bit of NVIDIA. The first non-tech name is actually Home Depot, sort of like Bunnings, mm. comes in at 1%. So you've got lots of tech names in there before you actually get to so, sort of something non-tech. In fact, 730 companies to be precise. So if you're comfortable having a pretty heavy tech bias, then this might be one for you. But if you're uncomfortable with tech, you're a bit worried about rising bond yields. You're a bit worried about country bias. You know, a lot of these technology companies are based in the US. This may not be one for you. Uh, similarly, though, some of the other ESG um, shares have got, or ETFs rather, have got similar issues as well. As I said, we prefer um, EPI, uh, even though the fee's a bit more expensive. They're a lot more concentrated, about 200 odd companies. 
But if Damien was to go for this one, I'd have no issues with that at all. And from an ESG point of view, with new monies coming into the market for every uh, $2 being invested over a dollar is now finding its way into ESG style funds. So it certainly is quite topical. Interestingly though, Nadine, going since April 2016, 200 million funds under management, which isn't too bad. But again, if I compare that to Ethi, Ethi's got over a billion. So uh, it's okay, but I think there are probably better ones out there. Okay, Effie being one of them. What do you make of it, Michael? Would you be putting clients into the iShares Core world, IWLD? Well, I mean, it depends on the client. If they have a, an ESG um, slant to them, then it's certainly one that, that does tick the box in that sense. But as Andrew points out, these things are very personal in taste. I mean, some would accuse Apple or Google of profit shifting away from high tax jurisdictions, you know, and that yeah. for some people is not ethical or for others it is. Uh, for me, I might be upset about that, but it's not going to stop me investing in those companies, whereas for someone else, it might be different. Um, in many ways, it's a very similar ETF to, say, the, the IVV, which is the S&P 500 ETF run by BlackRock, except if you look at the top 10 holdings, there's a lot of overlap there. It probably just excludes a lot of the energy-related companies, um, probably a lot of the mining companies as well. It does call itself a, a global ETF, but you look at nine of the top 10 holdings. In fact, the top nine holdings are all US-based companies. I think number 10 is a company from the Netherlands. So it is a very low-cost way um, of getting some broad definition um, ESG leaders within the market. Uh, do keep in mind this particular ETF is unhedged, so you are opening yourself up to fluctuations in the Australian dollar versus the US dollar. If the Aussie dollar does increase, you'll actually be worse off in this one. You're kind of hoping that the Aussie dollar falls with this position. There is a, a sister ETF, which is hedged, uh, so doing the exact same thing, but hedged out Australian dollar risk, and, and the code on that one is IHWL. So that's something to keep in mind as well for an investor to look at it. Um, from my standpoint, it's a hold. Um, I can understand why people would buy it, but it's probably not my go-to preferred pick uh, as an ETF. Thank you. Let's get on to the next company on the list, which is Breville Group. This is for Laura. It's on her watch list, so she would appreciate an expert opinion. Well, Laura, we've got two of them here. Michael, I'll start with you on Breville, because I think we've spoken about Breville in the past, and you're looking at it quite favorably, don't you? Yeah, look, it's one of those ones I've never actually owned, but I've always watched it and, and, and watched it go up and always found reasons <laughs> not buy it. Um, I had, you know, an inherent bias um, that, you know, in my head that he was just a simple jaffle maker or a toaster maker, but it's a lot more than that. So that would be unfair on the company. And they've done an incredible job expanding into overseas markets, particularly into North America. They're now looking to replicate what they did in the north of America in Europe. Um, they've spent a lot on research and development. Um, the business model is, is very scalable as they you know, get into more stores and, and start to sell more into those markets. It's a, quite an enormous market globally, um, at least the company thinks so. They think it's about a $10 billion per annum market globally. So for them, there's although they've made a good fist of it and they've gained a lot of market share, there's still an immense upside potentially for this company if they can continue to ramp up the distribution across the different continents. Um, they did flag some margin headwinds going forward. And a lot of businesses are finding this now. A lot of the input costs are going up and that's putting a little bit of pressure on the outlook when it comes to margins. So that's probably what the market's a little bit worried about at the moment. There's a lot of headwind, there's a lot of, um, sorry, 
news bites about the rising cost of inputs for a lot of companies. Mm. Uh, and this company did flag it in their report in August. And the, the news flow around inflation has probably continued to feed that concern about the business. But by and large, over a long period of time, it's consistently delivered. It's well backed. And the, the majority owner is Premier Investments, which is Solomon Liu. Um, focus. So, look, it's a, a very good business. I'll be tempted to wait until the next reporting season just to see how much these uh, costs have actually affected the company. But on any considerable pullback, it's a very high quality business with a very good balance sheet, good revenue growth numbers, good earnings growth numbers, good margins, good return on equity, all those key attributes which you want in the company. It's just finding the right time to buy it. At the moment, it's probably not the right time in my view. Uh, but I do have it on the watch list as a potential buy down the track. Yeah, right. You don't want to miss it again, do you? All right, let's go to Andrew on that one. Is it a buy, hold or a sell today? Because that's what we're looking for, at least in terms of putting things into the fantasy uh, portfolio that we run here at Ausbiz. But beyond that, Andrew, I mean, have you had clients in it in the past? Would you consider putting them in it today? I'm trying to help you with this portfolio, Nadine, but it takes two to tango, Michael. Help me out, brother. Help me out. Um, no, look, with relation to Breville, it is a hold, but I, I really do want to hit that buy button. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm really trying. Mm. Uh, but a PE of 41 times relative to forecast EPS growth of just 14% does make that difficult. And for all the reasons that Michael's just pointed out, in particular, inflation uh, is a thing. Maybe it's not transitory, maybe it is entrenched, but uh, it is a magic business. And I don't say that about too many businesses, but it really is a magic business, that strong return on equity, great margins, geographic uh, diversification, solely Lou on the register. There is lots and lots and lots to like about this business. Uh, consensus is around $31, where we're now at 29. So it's certainly moving into the frame and maybe on one of those pullbacks we spoke about at the beginning of the show, another five to 10% pullback, you know, we're sort of at the 25, 26s. Uh, I, would that, I would absolutely be buying them at those levels. So that is a live one for the watch list. See, it's an interesting one, Breville, when you think about rising costs and margins and whether they'll be able to pass it along to their customers. Because to your point, Michael, this is not just, you know, toasters and Jaffa makers. This is I reckon that some people would would pay up because they're now looked upon as a, you know, a, a, a sort of a desirable brand and upmarket brand. And I, I talk about this because I've done a lot of my husband's done a lot of research into coffee makers as of late. So Breville has definitely been uh, talked about in my household. Uh, let's talk about where we're at so far in the program, though, shall we? Sharing too much. I know uh, getting to the companies that these guys would be buying on a crash. So we're talking a significant pullback. And in terms of Andrew's pick Macquarie, it wouldn't actually take that much. He'd buy Macquarie Group anywhere between 151 and 155, somewhere around that level because of its annuities business, because of its diversification, its recurring revenue, its return on equities. He likes the business. He just wants it cheaper. Now, Michael interpreted Kashi's uh, edict uh, literally. So he looked back to where CBA, for example, sat in the GFC or the big sell-off that happened in the depths of the pandemic. And yeah, he said that would be a good time to buy these banks when the sentiment is so negative, when there's so many questions, but these businesses are still quality and will stand the test of time. So he's pretty optimistic about the outlook. He doesn't expect to be getting CBA 
really cheap anytime soon, but if CBA was that cheap, hey, you may as well pick up some of the other big fours as well. So that's the stocks for Crash Series for this Wednesday. Let's get on to our list of companies that were nominated by you. So thanks for emailing us these questions. BHP was the first one. It is a buy for Andrew. He's pretty comfortable with BHP on a long-term investment horizon. It is positioning itself for the future, so he's pretty relaxed at these levels. It's just a hold, though, for Michael. He's a little bit, a little bit uncertain as to what's happening around China. Iron ore, attractive company, but he's not buying it for his clients, so he's not going to recommend it today. Xgref is XF1, the ticker code. Look, the founder owns about 17% of the country, which you know could potentially pose a problem later down the road. But Andrew says that this business looks pretty good at an underlying basis. It's a hold for him. It's a hold for Michael as well, who's going to be looking a little bit deeper into this company. It looks expensive to him because it's going to continue to need to perform at these levels. But uh, it is an interesting business. So keep an eye on that one and do your own research, of course. C-Link, it's a sell for Michael. He says, look, margins have dropped, ROE's down. It is looking to expand, but it has missed out on a contract. So the sentiment is just really poor towards it. It's seen that uh, share price retreat from doing pretty well previously. So sell, but it's a hold for Andrew. There's a lot to like about this business, one of which is that it's got government as uh, its big, its big um, uh, customer. So 88% of its contracts are government. So he's holding it. He's watching it. Let's get to iWorld. It's an ETF, IWLD. It's not a buy for Andrew. He likes others. If you're looking for that ESG exposure a little bit better, Ethi is one of them. It's not a ringing endorsement from either of the guys, including Michael, who also points out that it's unhedged in terms of its currency exposure. So hold for him at best. Breville Group. Both of these guys, I think, have a bit of regret when it comes to Breville. Uh, Andrew would buy it if it pulled back to around $25, $26, which if we have some sort of a further correction just might happen. It's a magic business in his view. Michael would buy on a pullback as well. Uh, but again, it's just some of those questions around uh, inflation, around supply chains and input costs, the rest of it. So that takes us to the update on the Osbiz Fantasy Portfolio. You heard me reference it earlier. If you're new to the program or the podcast, what we do is if both of the companies get a buy from our guests on the day, which we've not had today, uh, it goes into this fantasy portfolio that we continue to track. What I can say is BHP's already in and it won't be taken out. So let's check in on how we've been performing. Pretty good over the week, up by close to 2%, up by about half a percent on the month. Year to date, close to 5% higher. We've been tracking this though since the beginning of July of last year. And since then, we're up by close to 42%. Some of the companies we've added lately, Wise Tech Global, 360 Capital Group, Whitehaven Coal, HT&E, and Silk Laser Australia. Those two were last Friday. Sanfire Resources, Adairs, Nick Scali, and A2 Milk have been booted out recently. If you'd like to look at that portfolio, osbiz.co forward slash portfolio is where you go. Let's get on to some of the next questions, shall we, guys? If you're ready, Nuix, NXL for Danielle. Uh, what do you think, Michael? Painful trade for those who were in at the IPO. Uh, but most of those were not retail investors. So again, if people are looking for opportunities to buy into a story before the big gains have been made, do you think that Nuix could be a bit of a turnaround story or just too hard? 
Look, it's not an easy one, this one, because on the face of it, the business and its technology um, is actually quite good. Um, essentially, it provides investigative analysis technology, which is used by journalists or accounting firms to scour through reams and reams of paper, you know, millions and millions of words to try and identify certain phrases, etc. And it was used, you know, in the Royal Commission, um, in the Panama Papers, that sort of stuff in order to identify different themes or different pieces of evidence and whatnot. Um, they've got a lot of customers globally, uh, and by all reports, the customers do like this technology. The churn rates have come down a long way. Um, the problem for this company is there was a new listing, um, and when you're a new listing really in your first year, you need to meet your prospectus targets, um, and this company missed its revenue targets. It did end up beating on its earnings targets, um, and it's prospectus guidance. So beneath all the negative media headlines um, surrounding the, the ex-CEO, um, one of the board members and this options deal, there probably is a half decent business there. Um, this business isn't growing that quickly, but it's a, a quality business that is growing and probably worth something more than it is trading for at the moment. The big question with a company like this is the looming legal court cases. Essentially, the ex-CEO um, when they went through a, a share split a number of years ago before it was listed, didn't have his options split. And he's basically put forward a claim against the company for the value of what those options would be worth today of around 250 million. The question is if this company does then have to pay um, the ex-CEO his money or what he's claiming that he's owed, 250 million, then the company's in a lot of trouble. Where does a company of this size find that amount of money? Um, however, if the court case moves in, in favour of Newix, then there probably is some value on the table. It's a bit of a binary outcome, I suppose, in that sense. And for that reason, I'll be steering clear because you just don't know what is going to happen um, once it's in front of the judge. But as a business, I think it's been very, very harshly treated, but that's likely due to that court action. So for mine, it's a, a no-go, but it's one I am watching just with with interest just to see how it does all play out. Because if you are a bottom feeder or a turnaround story merchant, then this is one that might tick your box. Yeah, so you're thinking that it could be eventually taken over as well. But I mean, Andrew, it's it's also criminal investigations by the by the regulators. Like there's there's not been really much good to come around Newix and it soured the whole IPO market for a while. Would would you yeah, yeah. you know, can, can you forgive and forget? No. No, I can't. Um, I'm, I'm sort of looking for that popcorn emoji, you know, where you're just sort of sitting there and <laughs> watching stuff going on because uh, it'll make a fascinating uh, business case at Harvard or, you know, of what not to do. But uh, Michael's run through a litany of the stuff. He's been a lot kinder than I was going to be, so I'm pleased that you went to him first. Uh, I mean, I, I look at the fact that, as you said, you've got ASIC looking at them. And if I'm management, am I looking at growing the business or am I looking at sort of batting and bowling ASIC away? Um, and so that's obviously a concern. Management isn't really going to be focused on the game. Uh, you've got a business which at the moment has got uh, return of equity and uh, net profit margin of less than 1% each. So, you know, I was talking about Breville being a magic business. Well, this ain't a magic business. Um, it's got a consensus, and I use that term very loosely because there's only one broker who follows it, of $6, um, trading on a forward PE of 20 times versus forecast earnings per share growth of 50%. Look, there's lots to dislike about this, Nadine. It certainly isn't a sell. That was a while ago. 
but uh, I could certainly think of plenty of other places where I'd be putting my money. This is not one of them. It's an avoid. I'm happy to put an avoid on that one because, uh, yeah, it's not a sell if you don't hold it, right? So let's get to the next one on the list. That is Blackstone Minerals, BSX. So Easton has offered his contact, saying it's operating at a large discount to its net present value. Um, for its downstream Newcrest mining plant. Given that the project is located in Vietnam, I assume most of this discount is due to sovereign risk. Interested in how the experts go about quantifying sovereign risks for companies. So now we're getting into it. Uh, First of all, would you be buying, holding, or selling this company, Blackstone Minerals, um, based on what it does and what it produces and what its, its ambitions are, Andrew? Uh, no, but it's not necessarily that it's a, a company issue. It's probably an Andrew issue more than anything. So, you know, the first one that we led off with was BHP. And we spoke about one of the reasons I like BHP is because of this greenification trade that's in play and will be in play for at least the rest of the decade. So I look at Blackstone, nothing wrong with Blackstone. And Easton obviously knows the company super well. So you know, hats off to you, Easton. But it's $129 million in market cap. I didn't even write down what the market cap of BHP is, but it would certainly be in the tens, if not $100 billion. So you sort of compare and contrast the two. I tend to sort of play in the bigger space, not necessarily the smaller space. But Easton raises a really interesting point around the fact that you do have a sovereign risk issue that you need to be considering given their exposure to Vietnam. Now, Vietnam's actually been relatively friendly from an investment point of view, Uh, And I'm not trying to sort of cast aspersions, but let's use an analogy where we look at China up until recently was an okay place to be doing business until it wasn't. And you're sort of dealing with another country, and this could be any country, I'm not picking Vietnam at all, could be New Zealand as an example. We saw New Zealand looking at changing their capital adequacy laws with their banks and the implications for say ANZ and Westpac. When you're dealing with an offshore Uh, operation, you are open to the rules of the government of the day. And uh, if they decide with one stroke of the minister's pen that they want to change the rules, then you are beholden to those rule changes. Um, So from that point of view, that does make me quite nervous. And again, it's got nothing to do with Blackstone. I would say that to you about any business that's operating offshore. So that would be probably one of my big issues that I have with it. In the context of the underlying business itself, it's trading well below consent excuse me, well below consensus, about $1.29. And the board owns around 12%. So, you know, the um, the board is invested with you. But uh, I note that short interest is rising. So in other words, people who are borrowing shares to try and drive the price down. Uh, so to me, it is a hold. But in the context of that green uh, greenification, nickel being uh, used relating to battery technology, et cetera. It's absolutely in the right space, but Andrew the Boring would probably stick to either BHP or, of course, being true to my ETF self, ACDC. <laughs> okay, got it. That's a bonus buy from uh, Andrew Veitlin. All right, Michael, Blackstone, uh, is yeah, sovereign at, risk enough yes. to put you off or is it the fact that it is a small company in Explore and there are easier ways to make money out there? I mean, the sovereign risk point, I think, with this company is overblown a little bit. There are far worse jurisdictions out there than, than Vietnam to deal with, I think. Um, I think this company, it's just very much an, an exploration type company at this point in time um, with hopes of adding value through a processing plant. So 
looking to sort of mine nickel, cobalt, manganese, uh, extract it from the ground, process it on site or through one of their facilities, and that way they can add value. They're looking to do this through renewable energy using hydroelectricity, which apparently is plentiful uh, around their particular sites. Um, one of their key sites in Vietnam has basically been in care and maintenance mode now for, for four or five years. Uh, they're looking to get that back up and running uh, at, a, at a certain point once it becomes viable for them. But the commercial production phase isn't expected to kick in until 2024. Uh, and that's if everything's done on time and on budget and they've got enough capital to get them through to that point. So there's a lot of risks around this. Um, the question from Easton does touch upon it trading below the, the net uh, present value of its assets. And, and it's not that in, entirely uncommon for many mining companies. Many of the coal miners, for instance, trade on very, very, very low multiples as well as other commodity companies. So that's not entirely unexpected either. I just think that there's a lot of potential risk in these assets in trying to develop them over the long term. The fact is, yes, if you sold those assets today, the net present value would be X. However, if you're going to spend all this capital along the way, basically burning through cash, that's what the market is taking into account and discounting. So there is a lot of water going under the bridge with this company, very high risk. And for that reason, I'm a no go. Got it. Now let's get to EML payments. EML is the next on the list from Ruby. Is this worth holding? Interesting, because we were talking about some of the issues uh, that were facing Nuix. Now, EML has really been a market darling at times, but again, it's got this issue in Ireland uh, with the central bank there in relation to one of its subsidiaries. Uh, again, I'll start with you, Michael, just because I'm there. Uh, EML payments, the underlying business, is it enough? Is there enough in that? Is there enough growth potential to offset some of the concerns that are emanating from Ireland? Yeah, as you touch upon, it was a market darling going back a couple of years, but it's basically been going sideways with a lot of volatility in more recent times. Um, they've got three parts to their business. There's the the reloadable general purpose cards, which are used by a lot of the, the online gaming companies. Uh, they do a lot of branded gift cards for a lot of the large shopping mall outlets um, around the world. And then they've got a third business segment, which is sort of a virtual account numbers, which allows a secure form of facilitating payments between uh, suppliers and their clients, etc. So it's, look, it's hard to get all parts of those business moving together in the one direction at the same time. Obviously, the branded gift cards has probably struggled a little bit in this environment. Um, the whole thing is they spent a lot of money on acquiring this business in Ireland. And then the problem now is they are under, not investigation, but there's a lot of dialogue back and forth between the regulator and the company um, surrounding some of the anti-money laundering um, and counter-terrorism financing that people use these cards for at times. So there's a chance that the regulator in Ireland is going to limit the number of new customers they can bring on at any given time. And it's really constraining the benefits they were hoping to extract from this acquisition. So with this cloud of uncertainty hanging over the business, it's very difficult to get excited and to buy it. Um, and for that reason, I'll probably be looking to sell if I was still in it, um, because I just think there's probably better alternatives out there with a clearer path to growth uh, without that capital, without that regulatory overhang at the moment. Got it. Andrew, you, EML? It's another form, of, and I agree 100% with everything that Michael just said. Uh, it's another one of these ones with uh, sovereign risk issues. Um, this time it's the uh, Central Bank of Ireland quite, being quite reasonable in everything that they're saying around um, that anti-money laundering piece, that AML piece. 
uh, just talking about that recent acquisition, uh, $112 million partly funded by new shares being issued at, wait for it, $5.01. So certainly those uh, new shares are well and truly underwater. Again, if we look at it as a, an underlying business, it's um, return on equity, 5% profit margin, sorry, return on equity is 3%, profit margin of only 5%. PE of 39 times is certainly pretty high. Um, trading, you know, consensus is four dollars fifty. Where is it about three ten or three eleven or something like that? Uh, it is a hold at best. Got it. Thank you. Next on the list, Global Data Center (GDC) for Luke. Uh, wondering what you make of this one, particularly in light of 360 Capital Group, which is a co-manager of the fund, selling its stake, Andrew. Yeah, I think it's a positive loop because from an overhang point of view, you've got uh, 360 uh, off the off the register. They uh, recently, they GDC have recently completed a share purchase plan, and those shares come online the 15th. When's that Friday? Uh, at a dollar 93. So, and I'm talking with my sparring partner, Mr. Jennings. Uh, one of the things we always identify, one of the few things we agree on is that companies that are doing share purchase plans or institutional placements, you're always just a bit wary when uh, new shares are coming on because that can sometimes, subject to where the share price is, can sort of um, weigh down that share price a little bit. I might also note that liquidity is pretty poor on this one. You know, you've got a market cap of $144 million, but only $144,000 a day of shares are traded. Now, getting 360 off the register may, again, also help in that regard as well. Um, the, the underlying business is okay. You know, data centres in Western Europe and in Guam, and, you know, looking at focusing on Western Europe and, uh, where are they saying, Southeast Asia as well as greenfield opportunities, whatever that means. Um, forecast earnings per share growth of pretty high, about 46%, but a equally eye-watering PE to match 46 times. So this is also a hold. Sorry. On price, got it. Now, Michael, what do you think of GDC? Yeah, look, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, it's not too uncommon for, for businesses such as this to go down the path that, uh, 360 Capital have gone down. I mean, going back to the back of the show, the beginning of the show, sorry, we touched upon Macquarie. Back in the day, you know, the old satellite funds, Macquarie would borrow a lot of money, put together a collection of assets, then look to sell those assets off, but retaining the, the management of those assets. And that's essentially what 360 Capital have done with the global data centre business, except rather than using debt, they raise money through a fund vehicle. Um, so it, it can work very, very well. Essentially, they just recycle their money from one asset into the next, but retain those management ongoing annuity fees. And then in recent times, what they've done is they've now sold out their stake into large funds such as Tribeca, such as Regal. Um, and that's not the worst thing in the world at all. It's it probably increased the liquidity in the market, made it a bit more of a tradable asset. The exposure to data centers, data centers is a bit of a buzzword these days. Everyone loves the idea of data centers as we consume more and more data, move things into the cloud. Um, this particular investment vehicle gives you a diversified exposure to data centers, whereas something like a Next DC, you're exposed just to that single company. So if you wanted that exposure, that broad exposure, this is a, probably a, an okay avenue to go down. Um, it does trade pretty close to its net tangible assets or its net asset value. Um, so I could think of worse places to put your money, but I'm not going to put it again as a buy just because we've never held it for clients. I can see it doing quite well over time. 
provided that their investments in the in that data space continue to do well. So um, if you do want exposure to this part of the market, I think it's a, a good diversified way of getting access to it. But you could probably find, as Andrew would probably tell you, a few different ETFs out there, whether it be domestically based or internationally listed ETFs that cover off on a similar thing. We don't have time, Andrew. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I'll let you respond. You got anything at hand? No, there isn't uh, anything domestically. We don't focus on offshore. There are two or three offshore, but nothing domestically, unfortunately. But certainly there's an opportunity for someone out there to put something together. I'm sure somebody's working on it already. All right, let's get to the last on the list, Clinuvel Pharmaceuticals, CUV. This one is for Jen. Michael, buy, hold or sell? Look, it's it's a hard one. They've done a very, very good job in recent years of growing their revenues. Um, They've effectively got one product that's in circulation and it is actually in production and being consumed globally. But they've got a series of different um, clinical trials underway, ranging from things from looking after strokes to DNA deficiencies, etc. And the long-term success of those clinical trials is, is unknown. Um, you never really know for certain. But if they do get a lot of these trials over the line from first phase through the second phase, through the third phase, then there's potentially a lot of value to be unlocked. Um, the company does have a track record and some success on the board with their their Sessence um, product. Um, so they have shown their ability to do it in the past. It's just a matter of whether they can continue to replicate that going forward. But it just shows you if you get one successful product over the line, the pickup in revenue can be pretty rapid and pretty incredible. So I've got this as a highly speculative uh, company. It's a hold if you've got it because you probably understood the risks involved. But as a, a more conservative investor, it is probably more on the volatile, risky scale of things. So yeah. I'll put it as a sell. Sell. You're doling out the sells today, Michael. All right, let's get to Andrew, whether he would be buying, holding or selling this one. Because again, you know, to Michael's point, it's, it's, it's one of these companies that there's plenty of announcements made around it. But um, it all comes down to how much product they will sell. Oh, Nadine, I thought we had him. I, th I thought, I, I, reckon, I reckon this one's a buy. I, I had that feeling that, eh, no good. Uh, it is a buy. Uh, but buy. it is a speculative buy. And I know you don't like riders or caveats, but I'm going to give yeah, you one anyway. Yeah, why is it a buy? Oh, look, there's lots to like about it. The uh, Well, if the first of all, you've got management um, owning 10% of the business, so their interests aligned with yours. Um, it's actually pretty reasonably priced relative to forecast earnings per share growth of around 46%. The PE is only 38 times. Uh, if you have a look at what they're actually involved in, it's treatment of EPP. I'm not even going to try and pronounce what EPP is, but it's basically people going out either into sunlight or fluoro lights being exposed to their skin and it's like a burning sensation. It's quite rare, but for those people who are afflicted with it, it's terrible. So it's a treatment for that. The product itself is called Sinise. I probably absolutely mm -hmm. butchered that, I'm sorry. But they're no, now actually it. using, thank you. So they're now actually using that with other products as Michael was just talking about before. And they recently had a big kick because of this DNA repair technology that they're working on. The company itself is up 42% per annum over the last five years relative to the market, which is only up 10% per annum. Uh, it is a buy. It is a spec buy, but it is nevertheless a buy. Thank you. That's for Jen. Guys, I'm going to have to just be brief. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. As always, it's nice to see you again. Nice to have a chance to chat. We look forward to speaking soon. Thanks, Thank Nadine. Thanks, Andrew.
Michael Wayne there from Medallion Financial and Andrew Whiteland from DP Wealth Advisory. All right, I will be very brief running you through these last on the list. Newitz is an avoid for both of my guests. Too hard basket, although Michael does wonder whether or not there could be some bottom feeders out there sniffing around at some point still though. Uh, B, sorry, it's not BHP, Blackstone, BSX. It is a, um, it's not a buy for either of my guests. It's too early stage exploratory. Getting into EML, it's a sell from Michael. Uh, too much sovereign risk, speaking of, for Andrew. GDC, it's a good thing, um, but it's just a hold for Andrew. It's a hold for Michael as well, though it is pretty diversified. Clinuvel is a specky buy. It is a sell though for Michael Wayne from Medallion. That's it for the program. It's wonderful to have you with us as always. If you'd like to listen to this again, you can do so in podcast form. If you have a question for our experts, please do email us at ausbiz.com.au, tweet to us at ausbiztv. Uh, we likely don't get to it on the day though, just keep that in mind. And um, yeah, tell your friends about us. We'd love to have them join in on the call and help us track the portfolio as well. If you'd like to do that, just go to ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Mm -hmm.